You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, it's great to be back with you. Uh, if you're not aware, I, I was actually on paternity leave for about a month. I, uh, my wife and I had our third son, Micah James Mutasib. And uh, a lot of, of, yeah, thank you. A lot of you have been asking me, what's the transition like from two kids to three? And I usually quote Jim Gaffigan, who also has four, he has four kids, or five. He he says, just imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. (laughs) That's a little bit of how we feel. Uh, We're hanging on, we're hanging on. Uh, Actually, last week, my son decided to take his poop and rub it on the wall. So... uh, we have an artist of the future, very avant-garde. So this sermon is probably the easiest thing I'm going to do this week. Uh, so I'm very excited to be here with you. Uh, yeah, man, I just want to encourage the dads in the room. Keep going. Uh, it's worth it. And to you moms, we praise you and thank God for you. And for those of you in the church who do not have children, we are thankful for you and we need your help. <laughs> So come to our aid. Babysit a lot, please. Um, yeah. Well, I'm really excited to open up back in First Timothy 4. We took about a month break. Here we are again, First Timothy 4, 6. And before we jump in, I want to pray for us. We need God to help us today. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do to make the Spirit, uh, to make the Scripture come alive. That's the Spirit changing us. So let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the hero of the scriptures, that each verse in the Bible ultimately points to you and your finished work on our behalf on the cross. May we get rest today, rest and relief from our own work, and rest and relief in your work. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would illuminate the text to us today. Show us how each verse applies to our life. And I pray we would not just hear it, but we would also do it. Make a mature church out of us. We're three and a half years old. But maybe, just maybe by your grace, you can make us a mature church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I know a guy named Tim Kirkshen. Tim Kirkshen is a baseball commentator on ESPN. If you're familiar with Major League Baseball, he's on TV a lot. And I asked him one time, Tim, what's the most interesting story you've covered of Major League Baseball in your like 30, 40 year career? And he said, my most interesting story is actually about Michael Jordan. It's like, Michael Jordan? He's the, you know, the most famous basketball player of all time? He's like, yeah, well, when Michael Jordan quit the NBA at the height of his success, he was the most influential, successful, rich athlete in the history of the world. He quit basketball, because apparently it was too easy, and he decided he wanted to play baseball. And he ended up uh, going to this minor league team, I think in like North Carolina, and Tim Kirkshen, along with every other sports reporter, went to that minor league team to cover Michael Jordan. And he said, the thing that most impressed me in all my years of baseball coverage was watching Michael Jordan practice in the offseason. Michael Jordan would stand on first base and pretend like a pitcher was trying to pick him off on first base, and he would dive back to first over and over and over again. And let me just tell you, Michael Jordan was not great at baseball. He wasn't on first base a lot. But he was still doing this drill. And by the end of the drill, Michael Jordan was covered in bruises and rashes. And that's when Tim Kirkshen said to me, 
That's when I knew Michael Jordan was the greatest athlete to ever live. Because he was willing to work harder at a fringe baseball skill than anyone else. And it's led to results in his basketball game, at least. And that idea of outworking everybody is the theme and the thesis of a New York Times best-selling book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. You may be familiar with that. And in the book, he asks the question, what makes the Beatles the greatest musicians of all time? What makes Yo-Yo Ma the best celloist of all time? What makes Christian Bale so good at acting? And he answers the question by saying, one factor, 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours of grit, grind, practice, sweat will make you the best in the world at what you do. You want to, a lot of you want to be good doctors, good teachers, good musicians, good realtors, good whatever, good moms. It's going to take 10,000 hours of practice, he says. But what's interesting is that the main source of this book, Outliers, is a psychology professor at Florida State named Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson, after this book was released and was super successful, he has actually since made it his mission to disprove Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Quite interesting. He says that 10,000 hours is compelling. You do need to work hard, but 10,000 hours is not enough. He says, you, he, told, he says to Malcolm Gladwell, you took my research and you came to an incomplete conclusion. It's not 10,000 hours of practice that you need to be great at something. You need 10,000 hours of good practice. You see, it's not just grit and grind you need. You need a good teacher. I, I feel this. I spent 100 hours on my golf game, and I still stink. I spent five minutes with a golf coach, and I'm Tiger Woods all of a sudden. You need grit and grind, but guided grit and grind. You need a good teacher. And what Paul's going to tell us this morning is that you need to work hard to do the most important thing you're going to do in this life, to grow in godliness, to look more like Jesus. There's no getting away from hard work. But here's some good news. You have a great teacher. Here's some even better news. You have a great savior. You need to work hard, but he's going to guide you. He's going to give you the power and pattern to grow, to look more like God. What's this section of scripture about? It's about godliness. And what is godliness? Godliness is looking more and more like Jesus. When you think of godliness, don't think of a monk on a hill hiding in a monastery. When you think of godliness, don't think of a preacher like me in a suit. We are not the pictures of godliness. Jesus is the picture of godliness. Imagine him around a table with, at a banquet surrounded by his friends. Imagine Jesus, the traveler, walking and looking a disabled woman in the eyes. Imagine Jesus looking at his friend who just dabbed him in the back and saying, I forgive you. That is your picture of godliness. That is the finish line for every person in this room. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul calls Jesus the, the mystery of godliness. Essentially, he is the personification of what is godly. And Paul's going to tell us in this section of scripture that if we're going to look more and more like Jesus, which is the goal of every human being, should be, you need two things. Here are your two points. You need to train yourself, and you need to hope in Christ. Pretty simple. We're going to break those down a little bit, but you need to train yourself, and you need to hope in Christ. Now, we're picking up in 1 Timothy about a month break, right? We're coming back in, and if you're, not, if you're just jumping in with us, the Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, a young pastor named Timothy, 
who's pastoring a church in a secular city, and this is a new young church. So it's pretty similar to RCC. We got a new church in a secular city. Boom, we can relate. And in this section of scripture, Paul's going to give Timothy instructions on how to be a good pastor to this church, though he's young and a little bit insecure. And I know in this room, you may not aspire to be a pastor. You may not have any interest in that field, which is okay. But there are a lot of young people in this room, aren't there? If you're above 35, I just want to say, we love you. Please come back. We need more of you. We need your wisdom. We got so many young people, and praise God for that. But young people, Paul's going to tell you, like he tells Timothy, you need to focus your life on the right things. You're just figuring things out. You're starting your career. You move to a new city. You're away from your mom and dad. And you're figuring, okay, what am I going to give my life to? What am I going to give my sweat to? What am I going to give my energy and my sacrifice to? Well, Paul will tell Timothy that answer. And the whole point of this book of 1 Timothy is to reveal what God's church is supposed to look like. And if you've been with us from the beginning, we've covered... What makes the church is the gospel. We've covered the role of men and women in 1 Timothy 2. That was interesting. Remember that? Uh, there was no riots. Uh, <laughs> thank God. If you were with us, you know what I'm talking about. If you, have, if you weren't with us, you should listen to the sermons. They're interesting. Uh, Paul says some controversial stuff. And Paul also then later in 1 Timothy 3 covered who leads the church. Elders served by deacons. And today Paul is going to say, here's how the church gets godly. Here's how the church gets spiritually swole. So let's jump in. Verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. Now, what are these things that Timothy is telling Paul to put before the brothers or to put before the church? It's likely all the instruction in 1 Timothy that I just covered. That's we've already talked about. But particularly the section just before this, at the, at the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul is is countering some false teachers in the church at Ephesus. These false teachers were teaching asceticism. Asceticism is a heresy that you can become godly by denying yourself of worldly pleasure. And I know there's some people in here who grew up in church and that's what you were taught. Christianity is don't drink and don't have sex. That is heresy, Paul says. Christianity is not about what you do or do not do. It's about what Christ has already done. And have you, do you believe that? And have you surrendered to that? And so these false teachers, these ascetics, are teaching Christians, if you really want to be godly, don't eat meat and don't get married. Well, those are my two favorite things. Well, they're like, well, if you want to be holy, don't do those things. And what these false teachers in the church were doing was what every human being is ingrained to do, to go on a self-salvation journey. To save yourself by either what you do or by what you don't do. They try to earn acceptance through their actions. And Paul says, no, we aren't saved by what we do or what we don't do. We're saved by the merits of Jesus Christ attributed to us through faith. So a good Christian can enjoy meat. Thank God. They can enjoy marriage. Thank God. It'd be hard for me to sell that to you, right? Like, come to Jesus. Don't eat meat. Don't get married. Let's do it anyway. That would be a hard sell. Now, Jesus says, no, you enjoy all that I made. Just surrender to me and believe in me for salvation. We are, Paul is telling us to enjoy creation, not avoid creation. We avoid sin, not God's gifts. 
And I, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful we have a God who gave us taste buds to enjoy gifts like coffee. Anybody have a good cup of coffee this morning? Yeah, come on. Praise the Lord for that, right? It was sweetened with some creamer and sugar. No. Listen. All right. The judgment in this church needs to tone down. All right. I like my coffee sweet, not tasting like socks. All right. I just lost all credibility from our congregation. I'm sorry. I'm so thankful God made guacamole. Come on, guacamole, baby. I have a friend who made guacamole last week. He put cream cheese in his guacamole. I know. Don't knock it till you try it. Incredible. I tasted it, and I, I was like, God, thank you for your good gifts. Thank God for fall crisp mornings. Can you beat this weather? This is a gift we enjoy. God does not say, avoid it and enjoy me only. He says, enjoy what I made, but enjoy me most in that I made it. We can enjoy books and art and music. Those are good gifts from a good God. And we should thank God we are not saved by rule keeping, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says, enjoy these gifts, enjoy the freedom of the gospel. So he's countering asceticism, and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do instead. He says, this is the opposite of asceticism. And it's not indulgence. The opposite of avoiding all pleasure is not go crazy and enjoy everything the world has to offer you. The opposite of asceticism, Paul will tell us at the end of verse 6, is to be trained in godliness. A Christian is not a monk who hides on the mountain, avoiding all the things of the world. A Christian, no offense, should not be Amish. And a Christian is also not a hedonist. Somebody who just indulges in what feels good all the time. The Christian is one who trains. One who is disciplined. Like Jesus, who went from meal to meal, party to party, yet John 4 says he was weary and tired from work. We party hard and we work hard in the Christian life. The reformer Martin Luther was said to fall on his bed from exhaustion and relief at the end of the day. And so should we, from training in godliness. And that's my point. That's Paul's point for the sermon this morning. You and I are called to give our sweat and tears and energy and sacrifice to train to look more like Jesus. Paul's showing us the path to godliness and it's going to require some effort. We've got to go to the spiritual gym. If this sermon were a song... I think it'd be this song. Yes, are you feeling it? Are you feeling motivated? Are you thirsty? That is the tenor of the Christian life. We are called to get in the gym and to work hard to grow to look more like Jesus. Point number one, how do you grow in godliness? You train yourself. Paul gives us two commands here on what that training looks like practically. Verse 6 to 7, he's going to say we need to eat the right doctrine. And verse 7, he's going to say we need to exercise the right disciplines. Man, if you wanted the answers to what Christianity looks like, this is a great sermon. Eat the right doctrine, exercise the right disciplines. I mean, Paul's going to say what any good trainer would say. You want to get fit? Okay, eat the right foods and exercise. Number one, verse six. 
You get fit spiritually by eating the right doctrine. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul gives us the first step on the path to godliness. How do you become a good servant of Christ? You get trained in the words of the faith and in good doctrine. Now, what does that have to do with diet? Well, this word trained here in verse 6 is actually the word nourish in the Greek. If you look at other translations, English translations, it'll say, be nourished in the words of the faith, or be brought up in the words of the faith, or fed in the words of the faith. So the image Paul is giving us is the first step to godliness is feeding on the right things. Like a kid. Have you ever seen a toddler eat? That is ravenous. That's what Paul's like, I want you to eat like that. My son uh, was the ring bearer in a wedding yesterday, and the wedding uh, organizer was like, Aiden, go sit next to Uncle Charlie once you hand off the ring in the ceremony. And Aiden says, no, I don't want to sit next to Uncle Charlie. I want to sit next to Nana, because she's got the Cheez-Its. <laughs> and then during the, the reception, he's like running around trying to find the cake. He's just like, where's the cake? Paul's like, that's how I want you to nourish on the scriptures. Maybe a little healthier than cake and Cheez-Its. But that's the mindset. And so ask yourself, am I seeking to feed and be nourished by God's word and the gospel every day? And then verse 7, Paul provides the counter to nourishing yourself in the scriptures and a good doctrine. He says, the counter is irreverent and silly myths, verse 7. Have nothing to do with them, Paul says. Now this phrase, irreverent, silly myths, is uh, the modern version of uh, old wives' tales. So what's the counter to nourishing on the word? Speculating on myths. This is the first century version of the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. Or Joe Biden is the Antichrist. All horrible hermeneutical non-biblical garbage used to cause Christians to speculate and actually not do anything productive. And even if you are right, okay, so what? What did you accomplish? Paul is essentially telling us that a productive Christian conspiracy theorist is about as uh, common as a meat-eating vegetarian. They don't exist. And what, what is happening in this Ephesian church, like what so often happens today, is that this church is chomping on spiritual junk food. They're speculating on non-biblical things. And it's producing flabby Christians who sit around gazing at their navel with one eye and the other eye scanning Facebook for the next spiritual myth. You, you see the heart of what Paul is rebuking here. The main issue is that these Ephesian Christians had a bad diet. And it's a similar problem today. They say you are what you eat. So what are you spiritually eating? What information source are you most consuming? Because that is most influencing how you think and live and feel. I mean, if you're constantly watching Fox News every night, what do you think you're going to think about Democrats? They're the worst. They're the cause of all the problems in the world. And if all you're watching is MSNBC, you're going to be thinking, oh, Republicans are the worst. If you eat, 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 myth, speculation, you will crap out garbage. 
And it's not just secular sources that are myth and speculation and distracting from us training in godliness. There are Christian versions of speculation and myth. Hear me. You've you got to hear this because this is, this is a problem today. Just because a building has the words church on the sign, just because a service has a preacher on the stage does not mean it is good spiritual food for you to eat. So many Christians, and I pray this is not true of, of our church, so many Christians are content to go to churches that will serve you spiritual Cheetos for dinner. And so many churches are content to serve Cheetos because people keep coming. And sure, it might be more palatable. It might taste a little better at first. It might be less culturally offensive than a series of the book of 1 Timothy. It might even be easier to bring your lost friend to this. But that is not going to grow you spiritually. Here's how you can tell if a church is nourishing you in the word and in the gospel. Ask yourself, is the main point of this teaching rooted in the main point of that Bible text? Is the main point of the sermon the main point of the verse he's referencing? And if the answer is no, that is speculation and myth. Some of it's helpful. Some of it is insightful. But it's not nourishing food you need to grow in your walk. Paul says the first step in growing in godliness is consuming nourishing doctrine, the word, the gospel. You know, I have a friend who is a personal trainer. He focuses on helping guys get buff. And he said something to me that was shocking. He said... Adam, 90% of muscular growth is not actually the act of lifting weights. 90% of muscular growth is actually what you eat. Because you can lift all day, but if you are not taking in enough calories and enough grams of protein, you're not going to grow. You'll still stay skinny. You've got to eat the right things and enough of the right things. And I would say similarly, 90% of you growing to look more and more like Jesus is watching what you eat. What teaching are you consuming? What are you chomping on? What are you chewing on? And does it look like my son Aiden looking for the Cheez-Its? Or does it look like somebody sitting in a crowd just chomping on Cheetos, asking somebody else, hey, you serve me something that tastes good? If you're here and you're new to the Christian faith, you're new to the Bible, I just want to tell you, I'm so glad you're here. You are welcome here. We celebrate that you're here. And I want to encourage you to get started in nourishing yourself in the Bible. And I get that it's not always super exciting. It's not always super easy to understand. I struggle to read the Bible sometimes. But broccoli usually isn't exciting at first, is it? We usually jump over. My kids usually celebrate about cake, but don't really celebrate about carrots. But we need carrots. And you will learn to appreciate the taste of something that is good for you over time. I didn't like avocados at first. I would have missed out if I just didn't eat them. And if you're just used to spiritual lollipops, it will take you a minute to get used to the meat of the word. But let me encourage you that what often starts as a discipline quickly turns into a delight. Ask somebody who likes running. When they started running, they did not like it. But over time, they can't stop doing it. What starts as a discipline, like reading the Bible, will quickly turn into a delight. And studies say that it takes reading the Bible, consuming the Bible, four times a week for it to truly be effective on your life. Four times a week is a good rhythm of studying, knowing, meditating on the Bible. 
And over time, if you do that, you will balk at how much sugar and garbage is in the teaching that we have today around the world. And you'll start to enjoy natural flavors more, and your spiritual health will drastically improve over time. So if you want to grow in godliness, first step, watch what you eat. Eat the right doctrine. Second step, exercise the right disciplines. We've got to eat good. We've got to exercise good. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Don't eat spiritual junk food. Here's the counter. Train yourself for godliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. This is, the word train is different than the word train in verse 6 in Greek. The train, that train meant nourish, eat. This train is actually the Greek word gymnazo, which is where we get the word gym. So this verse implies sweat yourself, grind, work hard. Train for godliness. Paul is talking to uh, the church in Ephesus, and this church is in a city that loved athletics. A lot of athletes in Ephesus would spend a great deal of time and money training for festivals and competitions. So it's a culture like ours that values physical fitness, training. We have a culture of Pelotons and professional athletes, don't we? So we can appreciate physical grind. Paul's saying do that with your spiritual life. He's saying that godliness looks a little bit like P90X. You should be working hard. You should be sweating. You should have some discipline. Now, what is discipline? Here's a simple definition. Discipline, especially spiritual discipline, is doing what you hate doing as if you loved doing it until you end up loving doing it. Discipline in any, any field is doing what you hate doing as if you loved doing it until you loved doing it. Now, Paul leaves this discipline pretty general, the kind of spiritual disciplines we should be practicing if we're going to look like Jesus. But here, uh, I'm going to give you just a list of, here's some example of Christian spiritual exercises you can be doing to, to um, see how well you're doing in your spiritual health. The only example of a spiritual discipline we have in this text is actually reading and hearing your Bible. That's what I have listed first. Uh, and so if you're going to exercise spiritually, you need to have a discipline of reading your Bible, singing your Bible, praying your Bible, meditating on the Bible, memorizing the Bible, studying the Bible. That is the primary means by which you grow to look more like Jesus. That's number one. Here's some more disciplines that I've added that come from other texts of Scripture that you could be practicing if you want to get spiritually fit. Number two is prayer. Prayer is, is living in constant communication with God. Prayer should look less like a confessional booth with the priest and more like a phone call with your dad. How are you doing at prayer? To give you some context of previous generations' spiritual fitness, the Puritans, many of them, would wake up at 4 a.m., pray for two hours, and then start their day. We should be disciplined in our scripture reading and in our prayer. And our goal, even in this service, is to pray so much and so often that nominal Christians get bored that we talk so often about God that they only say they believe in Third discipline you can practice is attending the corporate gatherings on Sundays. It's what we're doing right now. You come, you discipline yourself to come on Sundays, not just to receive something, though you will receive something, but to give something. Could you imagine if you showed up to a spin class? All right, I'm here to get physically fit. All right, give it to me, spin instructor. I'm just going to sit here and let you give. No! You go to a spin class, you go to a Pilates class and say, all right, let's do this. I'm ready to give. You come to the gathering as a spiritual discipline, primary over your life, over uh, soccer games or football games or dance recitals or even vacations in some sense, so that you can give 
to God, your worship, and grow in godliness. Fourthly, you can discipline yourself by fasting. Fasting is denying a physical pleasure to focus on enjoying God first and foremost. Fifthly, another discipline you can practice is committing as a family member to one local church. Show me an athlete in a team sport that's not a part of a team. Yet there's so many Christians who say, oh yeah, I'm on team Jesus, but I'm not a part of actual team. Being a Christian assumes you are a part of a particular local church. And so let me encourage you, if you are a Christian, you need to join, it doesn't need to be our church, but a church to grow in your spiritual health. That's part of a discipline. Number six, something you can do to train yourself to exercise the sweat and godliness is to give generously to that church that you're a part of, that you call home. Give your time and give your money to Jesus' church so that it can be built up. Spirituality is a lot like a body of water. If you hold and hoard what you've been given, you will become rotten very quickly. But if you freely give back and pour out what you've been given, you will become a living stream. And I know some of you are thinking, oh great, the pastor's talking about money. I don't need your money. God will provide money for this church. You need to give your money because if you hold on to it, if you hold on to your time, you're going to be spiritually unhealthy. Number seven, you can grow your spiritual health by sharing the gospel. Risking it, perhaps this awkward social interaction to share the good news of Jesus. That will grow you in your faith. That will build up spiritual muscle in you. Number eight, join a gospel community. And I don't know of anything more effective to grow in holiness, to get swole spiritually than by practicing loving real, messy, broken people. And gospel communities, it's just the way we do life on life in our church. That's a great way to do that. You will grow in godliness by learning to deal with me. I am messy. And I will grow in godliness by learning to deal with you. And yet we love each other and work through our, our, our ish together. Number nine, you can serve people who can pay you nothing back. You want to grow spiritually strong, work out. Do stuff for Jesus simply because you love Jesus, not to get something back. If you give just to give because you love Jesus, watch your holiness skyrocket. Jesus says when you throw a party... Throw, throw a party to people that can pay you nothing back. Invite people who will never throw a party for you. That's how you can grow spiritually. Number 10, you can exercise spiritually by practicing Thanksgiving or celebration. You know, we are literally the richest, healthiest, most well-off generation in the history of the world. And yet we always are finding things to complain about. The traffic, the internet being out, our phone not being good enough, our boss. A spiritual exercise is stopping, pausing, meditating, and saying, God, thank you for the good things you have given me. That is a practice that you need to discipline yourself to do. And even if you're sitting there and thinking, I hate my life, I hate my wife, I hate my kids, I hate my job, I hate my everything, you can still sit there and be thankful for the fact that God dragged you from hell to heaven. You can practice thankfulness in any season of life. Number 11, you can practice spiritual disciplines by Sabbath. Sabbath is spending one day a week taking a break from what you do for a living to focus on God. Sabbath is a reminder to your soul that the world will spin even if you don't work. Crazy, right? You need to practice this to grow in your spiritual health. Number 12, hospitality. This last one. Hospitality is not entertaining people. Hospitality is not making sure your house is vacuumed and bringing out the fine china, inviting people over to entertain them. Hospitality simply in the Bible means welcoming the stranger. You will grow in your holiness if you welcome people, sacrifice to help care for them. You can do that today by saying hi to someone new. Question, how are you doing at this list, friend?
How is your exercise regimen going? Here's just, these are just a few examples of things you can be doing. If you want to grow in godliness, you need to eat the right doctrine and exercise the right disciplines. And just like the physical gym, if you do this just once a month, you're not going to see results. This takes a lifestyle of discipline to really grow into Christ-likeness through these things. And do we do this because we have to? No, we do this because we get to. There's a big difference between legalism and discipline. Legalism says, I have to do this or else God will be mad. Discipline says, I want to do this because I love God. I want to open up His Word and learn more about Him. I want to become more like Him. There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Now, if we're going to acknowledge that we need to eat the right doctrine, exercise the right disciplines, and that training for godliness is that. It's training. It's, it's hard. It's, it's work. We need to recognize four implications. And this is so important. We need to recognize that if you're going to go down this path towards holiness, that it's going to take great effort from you. People often assume that sanctification, growing in godliness, should not be hard. Like you should just ooze into it. And in a very real sense, you do ooze into holiness because uh, justification is the doctrine that you did nothing and you're justified by the work of Christ. It's just as if I'd never sinned. But there's also the spiritual reality of sanctification, which says that the Spirit of God, through your work, through your sweat, through your effort, is slowly sanctifying you, making you look more and more like Jesus. And that's hard. It takes effort. You might be stuck on a sin today or a pattern of behavior that you just can't seem to get past. And you might be asking yourself, why is this so hard? The Holy Spirit should be making me more like Jesus. Why am I not more patient? Why am I not less angry? Why am I not more loving? Why can I get, not get over this sin? Well, what makes you believe it should be easy? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say, it shouldn't be this hard to hit a curveball? Would someone who wants to write the next great American novel of her generation say, it should not be this hard to write believable characters in a compelling narrative? And the understandable response is this, but this is not baseball, this is not literature, this is godliness, this should be easier than those things. Any person that enters into a relationship with God is still spiritually broken from their sin. We are so far from the holiness of God. And because of our brokenness, we are much more likely to coast into sinfulness than we are to coast into godliness. This is why godliness is much more painfully hard to achieve than athletic or artistic prowess. Raw, natural talent does not enable you to play baseball as a pro. Or write great literature without enduring discipline and hard work. And why would it be easy to suddenly become like Jesus in light of what is profoundly wrong with our human nature? Many people who have mastered athletics and art have failed miserably at godliness. So the biblical doctrine of sin explains to us more than anything that it is holiness is a good and important thing to give our life to, but it is painful and hard because of the sin that dwells within us. So expect it to be hard. Expect to give a lot of effort. Nothing worth doing is easy. And so you're going to have days where you don't feel like picking up your Bible. You're going to have days where you don't feel like praying. You're going to have days where you don't feel like going to the church gathering. You're going to have days where you don't feel like practicing hospitality. And it's what you do on those days that really matters. It takes great effort. Second, it takes great sacrifice. 
Uh, Pastor Adam and I were at the gym uh, a couple weeks ago, and there's always this guy that we see that is just a fine specimen of muscular. You know, it, I, I'm, I've been at the beach before with my wife, and I'll look at a guy and be like, oh my gosh, he is so swole. And my wife would be like, ew, there's too many muscles. I'm like, you have no idea the amount of effort this man has put in. Will you appreciate how attractive he is, please? And so Adam and I are at the gym and looking at one of these fine specimens, his name's Rich, and he's got muscle on muscle on muscle. And I remember thinking like, what does this guy do to look like that? And I even got the courage to ask him, hey Rich, can you tell me a little bit of, I promise I wasn't weird, but I was like, can you tell me a little bit of what you do? Your, your regiment, and this is what he told me. He said, okay, I go every day, twice a day to the gym. I work out two hours each session. I don't take breaks in between lifts. No looking at my phone, no breathers. Just go right into the next set. I make sure I eat 3,500 uh, calories every day, and I eat my weight and protein every day, and I don't eat any garbage food. And I do this day after day after day, and I take one break day a week. And I remember thinking, I'm good. <laughs> but I can't complain if I don't look like Rich. And here's the thing, if you want the results someone else has, you, you need to ask yourself, are you willing to put the effort in that they're willing to put in? I remember thinking early in my faith, looking up to an older man who's so close to Jesus, so kind, so gentle, and asking myself, am I willing to wake up at 6 a.m. and pray for an hour like he does? Oof, I don't know if it's worth it. I remember uh, looking at one of my favorite preachers and he told me that he reads a book a day. I mean, excuse me, a book a week. And I remember thinking, am I willing, am I so bought in to becoming the best preacher I can that I'm willing to do that? I, I was hanging out last week with my friend Stephen who's in his 40s. He has an incredible marriage. He's raised four teenage boys who all love Jesus, which is a marvel nowadays. And I remember asking him, like, Stephen, what's your secret? T teach me, oh wise one. How do you become such a good dad and husband? And he says, are you willing to put in the selflessness, the effort, the care that I was? It's constant sacrifice. My wife called me when I was hanging out with him and she's at Patterson Park walking home to our house. And she's like, um, hey, I'll be home in like 10 minutes. I'm walking to, from the park home. And I was like, hey, do you want to ride? And I'll come pick you up. And she's like, no, no, I'm fine, I'll walk. And I hang out the phone and Steven's like, what are you doing? You don't ask if she needs a ride, you go get her. I'm like, dang, I suck. <laughs> and I remember asking, like, thinking, like, am I willing to put in that level of intentionality to be the kind of husband and man that he is? And if you want to grow in your spiritual godliness, you need to be willing to put in the effort that no one else is willing to put in. Michael Jordan on first base. Number three, just briefly, it takes great intentionality. Ask a golfer, how's your golf game going? And they'll say, well, I'm working on my putting. Just want to perfect that. Ask a musician, what are you working on? I'm working on my, my, my rhythm, my strumming. You ask an actor, how's your acting going? Oh, it's going great, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a little funnier on stage. Every person who's focused on growing in some area always has something they're, they're progressing on, they're, they're trying to grow in, and that should be the case of your godliness. It, could you imagine a church community where we are so committed to our own godliness and in community that we ask, how's your godliness going? And you say, oh, I'm, you know, really great in this area, but I'm really trying to work on patience here. I'm, I'm memorizing this verse, and I'm, I'm having this person hold me accountable. That's what church is supposed to look like. 
Church is not an event you come to or a building you walk into. Church is a people that hold you accountable to grow in your godliness. It's fellow trainers training to look like Jesus. And you should have people in this church who you're walking arm in arm with who are challenging you to grow in the areas that you need to grow in. And you're saying, help me grow. It takes great intentionality. And fourthly, finally, it takes great patience if training is godliness. You know, uh, I have friends who've done the couch to 5K app. You know, you go from doing nothing on the couch to running a 5K. That thing takes months. I would get crushed by a 5K right now. I am not ready for a 5K. It would take me months to develop to be ready. In the same way, the transition from being a liar to an honest person takes some time. To be fully cleansed of sexual sin, it's not going to happen overnight. You don't just put covenant eyes on your phone and, all right, we're good. God, take care of me. It takes some patience. Remember, we are corrupted by our sin. So give yourself a lot of grace. Maybe you're not where you want to be. That's okay. Jesus loves those kind of people. I'm there. You uncover my life, you'll see tons of areas I need to grow in. Guess what? We're growing together and we're looking to the great Savior who's walking with us on the path to godliness. Let's be a family of sinners who give each other a lot of grace as we patiently grow. Verse 10, Paul says that in our training for godliness, we should toil and strive. Can I ask you, are you toiling and striving towards godliness today? Your Christianity should look like a new runner running a 5K. And this is why American Christianity is so sick. I need to say this. Because you have a bunch of fat, unhealthy, quasi-Christians who are feeding themselves with spiritual Krispy Kremes, whose spiritual life is summed up by coming to a service and watching one semi-fit guy talk about holiness, but they're not actually doing anything. And you're sitting here like, why am I not more like John the Baptist? Well, because you're chomping on donuts all day. You're not eating any spiritual broccoli. You're not going to the spiritual gym. You're not on a spiritual team. And you're sitting there like, why God? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you're not putting in the effort. The Bidi Anubile, a great pastor in, in inner city DC, he says, you cannot expect acts of the apostles' results with a first Corinthians lifestyle. You are called to exert effort, to strain, to be just uncomfortable. This is why Jesus said, many will try Christianity and walk away. And this is why our gathering is not Christian Chuck E. Cheese. This is a spiritual workout we're at right now. This is a, a Christian spin class. We're trying to get fit, training on the word together. And so, let me just, I'm just going to be real with you. Forgive me. If you're bored right now, first of all, I'm sorry. But if you're bored right now, or if you've been bored regularly at, at Sunday gatherings at churches, Perhaps it's because you're showing up expecting not to exert any effort. I'd be bored too if I went to a spin class and watched everyone else work out. That sounds horrible. And we've had people come to RCC and say, creeds, gross. Hymns, gross. Bible preaching, gross. Sermons that sometimes are 50 minutes? Gross! I get it. But they have no endurance for any sort of spiritual training. I had one guy tell me, I'd like your sermons more if you talk less about the Bible. Oh, thanks for being honest. But 
all of that assumes you're not coming into this room to exert any effort. You're not here to work out. You're here to get spiritually uh, pampered. Godliness looks less like a massage and more like a workout. If Christianity were a car, it would not be cruise control. It would be stick shift with a clutch. you got to work that thing. And I know you guys are willing to exert effort. I see all of you in the fall going apple picking. You would rather walk for two hours in the cold and pay $35 for something you can get at Target. If you can apple pick, you can discipline yourself in spirituality. And the results are so much better. That's what he's going to say. Point two. Train yourself by eating the right doctrine, exercising the right disciplines. And here's the good news. Hope in Christ as you do. Hope in his rewards. Why do we train so hard? Verse eight. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here's the point here. Everyone in this room is grinding to improve at something. It could be... uh, at the gym, it could be you're passing your MCATs, it could be moving upwards in your company, it could be finding your soulmate on eHarmony, it could be building your Minecraft world. You are sweating to improve something. Paul says nothing, nothing makes more sense to devote your life to than Christ-likeness because it has benefits now and it has benefits later. When I was a teller at a bank in college, they used to offer overtime shifts and the tellers would fight over the overtime shifts because you got paid time and a half. Paul's saying here, you get paid more than double if you give your sweat towards godliness. You get benefits now and you get eternal benefits later. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, welcome, we love you, but you are devoting your life to something of this world And it will go very quickly. And you need to know that this life, whatever you're working hard for, is the best it will ever be for you. Your muscles will fade to flab. Your money will eventually become less valuable than Bitcoin, probably. Your house will rot. So you better enjoy the benefits of your hard work now, because they'll be gone soon. And if you're a Christian who's here training in godliness this morning, You need to know this life is the worst it will ever be for you. You not only get to enjoy the godliness today, not only does your family and friends get to enjoy the fruits of your godliness today, not only do you get the purpose and joy of Christ today, but you have no idea what the reward will be, how great it will be when Christ returns. Paul doubles down in verse 9. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Essentially, Paul says, take that to the bank. That is a life verse to bank your life on. Sweat for godliness because it's worth it. We hope in Christ for his rewards and then finally his redemption. Paul says in verse 10, we have our hope set on the living God. Hope in the Greek does not mean hope like, I hope the ravens cover the spread today. Or I hope that girl I have a crush on likes me. That's a, a faint maybe hope. The hope in the Greek here more means confident assurance. It means happy anticipation. We hope like a lost person hopes on Google Maps. I know this will take me home. Who is our confident assurance? It is Christ. And listen, you've got to understand, no other religion offers you that. Hope in, your, in a person. 
Every other worldview presents you with a spiritual trainer to help you help yourself. Islam, Muhammad says, follow me in, in doing the five pillars of Islam or else. Buddha says, be spiritually buff like me, follow me towards the path of enlightenment or else. Pope Francis, oh, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to offend you. Pope Francis is a spiritual trainer who says, go to confession, say 20 Hail Marys or else. Secular culture is a spiritual trainer who says, work out as hard as I do. Follow me in the path towards self-actualization and tolerance or, or else you'll be canceled. Here's some good news for you this morning. Jesus is not a spiritual trainer saying, follow me or else. Jesus is not even just a spiritual teacher. Jesus is a spiritual savior who says, I'll lift the weight for you. You just get to run with me the rest of the way. He is the one we put our hope in. Hope in the fact that when you were at your absolute worst, Jesus still went to the cross for you. Hope in the fact that you cannot do anything ever again, and Jesus says, you shall still never depart from my hand. Hope in the fact that it's Jesus' godliness, not your own, that saves you. Hope in the fact that Jesus is the one who gives you the power and the pattern to grow in the things you are just not naturally holy at. This is why Christians are the only religious group in the world that sings. Because every other religion says, all right, here's your checklist. But Jesus says, it's done, so let's celebrate. And now let's go work hard from acceptance, not for acceptance. We receive all of Jesus' godliness the moment we believe like a sandcastle receives the tsunami. And then we go sweat afterwards because he is so worth everything we have. Our hope is set on this Savior in the same way a drowning man's hope is set on a raft until Jesus leads us to the golden shore. And that's what makes me, as Paul says in verse 10, want to toil and strive. We toil and strive because of the grace of Jesus. And as we close, can I just be, can I be an honest pastor with you today? Is there some grace for the pastor today? Here's the truth. If I'm being honest, I often do toil and strive, but for the wrong things, for earthly things. Or I do toil and strive for the right things, but for the wrong reasons. I want to pray a long time because it feels good to know I prayed longer than that other Christian. I want to help the poor because it feels good to say I help the poor more than they did. And if I'm really honest, my real temptation right now is to not toil and strive at all, to just coast. I mean, I helped plant a church in Baltimore City. That's pretty prestigious. I feel like I'm a pretty good dad and husband. I could just chill. Or I can rest on my previous accolades. Here's the, all the good spiritual stuff I've done, so let me just relax the rest of the way. I'm tired. Godliness is hard work. It, it kind of reminds me of Jim Gaffigan. He says he's been to the gym and he sees a guy who's really buff. And I'll look at him and say, what are you doing here? You're done. And sometimes at church, in my pride and sin, I'll, I'll look and I'll be like, man, I, I'm pretty good. And it's in those moments I really want to coast. I really want to quit. Or when godliness is really hard. Where I just can't. Because I look at Jesus. Sweating. Not... not Sweat, but sweating blood. In the garden saying, God, I don't want to do this. 
but I love them so much, and I love you so much, I can't help it. I see Jesus carrying a 165-pound cross on a, on a torn-up back, and he's so worn down, he needs a spotter to help him carry it. And he keeps going because on the top of the hill is my salvation. I see him bearing the full weight of God's wrath on my behalf. I see Jesus, though he could have stayed in this comfort in heaven, he could have coasted. He came down and gave me everything. And I cannot look at that Savior and say, let me just chill. That's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me training. And I want to encourage you to go train in godliness with him today. End of verse 10, Jesus, this hope is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That doesn't mean Jesus saves all people. That means if you believe in him, you will be saved. And friends, the point of the sermon today is that you do not need 10,000 hours of practice, of meditation, of prayer, of Bible reading to be holy. You need a good teacher. In fact, you need a good Savior. Guess what? He's available and ready to save you right now. You come to him, you give him your life, and watch how holy you become. Now let's get to work in training godliness. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are not just a spiritual guide who says, do what I do and you'll be better. You are our Savior who comes in and says, let me take that heavy burden. We rest in your finished work and we now work hard to grow in all the disciplines of the spiritual life because we want to look like you. You're the only thing good in this world. And we want to mirror you. Lord, I know we're a really young church. We're three and a half years old. But by your grace and by your spirit's power, would you turn this three and a half year old church into a mature church? One who works hard and looks like Jesus. May we nourish on your word by eating the right doctrine and exercise the right disciplines. All the while hoping in Christ, looking to him as he's finished the work already. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast. Thank you.